One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Morning, Chris. Good to talk again. As always, it's becoming cliched at this stage. A lot of stuff going on at the moment. Um, we had some major moves on the interest rate front with the European Central Bank moving this week. We have further political turmoil in Italy with the resignation of the government and an election on September 25th. We have the French government announcing a plan to reduce its budget deficit over the next five years. But serious question marks there over the ability of Macron to do it. Uh, we have Ukraine and Russia signing a deal that was brokered by President Erdogan in Turkey, which seeks to release the exportation of wheat from Black Sea ports. Uh, we, of course, have the ongoing story with UK politics with um, Rishi Shunak and Liz Truss now down to the final part of that race. I know you'll have a lot to say about that. And uh, there's there's an interesting story, I think, from a media perspective. Um, the Sunday Times Ireland and the Times Ireland has announced that I think up to 12 of 20 journalists are taking voluntary redundancy and leaving the newspaper. And I guess that says a lot about what is happening mainstream media at the moment. And I know you were reading a lot of interesting stuff about journalism in the New York Times during the week. So listen, if we can get through half that stuff, we'll probably be doing well. But just to start off on the interest rate front, we had the Bank of Canada increasing rates by 1% last week, which is a pretty extraordinary um, single interest rate increase. We had the European Central Bank yesterday increasing its base rate and other rates by a half of 1%. It is the first interest rate increase since that infamous mistake by Jean-Claude Trichet 
back in 2011, but it is the first half percent increase since June 2000. So I think that tells us a lot about how the world is changing, how the European Central Bank um, has totally changed its view. Uh, the eight-year experiment with negative interest rates is ending, at least for the moment. But um, I saw an interview yesterday that Philip Lane, the chief economist with the European Central Bank, did last November, where he was arguing that to increase interest rates in the euro area would be counterproductive and dangerous. And of course, you know, just over six months later, we've now seen, um, as I say, the largest rate increase since June 2000. Um, an interesting issue here in Ireland is that, okay, people on tracker rate mortgages, and I think there's about 300,000 of those as far as I can gather, they obviously are contractually obliged to pay a half percent extra on their mortgages. But there is pressure um, on the banks in the with the other variable rate mortgage holders not to pass on yesterday's increase. And it kind of strikes me. Um, what is the point of increasing interest rates if the rate increases are not going to be passed on to certain segments of the public? Um, surely the purpose of increasing interest rates is to dampen demand, try and reduce inflationary pressures. Um, and yet we get this sort of populist pressure on the banks not to pass it on. K kind of strange, but it also kind of says to me that... Um, Perhaps it's uh, an explicit admission that the inflation problem in the euro area is not caused by excess demand. It is a supply side problem and increasing interest rates to address a supply side problem isn't exactly a straightforward or logical process, I would have thought. So I'm a little bit confused, I have to say, about what the ECB did yesterday and why it did it and uh, you know how effective it's going to be in tackling the inflation problem that we have obviously seen emerge in pretty dramatic fashion over the last six months. Um, other than, of course, you know, if the Eurozone economy is pushed into a deep recession, well, that very quickly reduces the demand for everything. And then the supply side problems uh, become a little bit less important if there's no demand there. So, um, Strange times indeed. And of course, the other point is that, you know, the European Central Bank is going to keep going. Uh, I would expect over the coming months, uh, rates to go from a half percent now to around two percent. So um, a lot coming down the track in that regard. What do you think? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Somebody said this week that the problem with the EU is that politicians designed the economic policy and economists design the politics. And if you think about it, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And from the sort of English speaking financial world perspective, we used to call it the Anglo-Saxon world, the euro right from the get go has been a puzzle for people who have not participated in it. In many ways, the old exchange rate crisis of the early 90s, which you and I would remember, Jim, and nobody else does anymore because we're old, were born out of Anglo-Saxon scepticism, English-speaking, typically, scepticism about the sustainability of the European project uh, versus the political will within Europe that, despite the economic logic, always arguing against, for example, the creation of the euro itself and many other aspects of European economic policy, uh, it's it, we're still here. 
But we're still here with, uh, as a Bloomberg commentator put it this morning, with desperation measures from previous crises still in place. We've had all sorts of open market transactions, OMTs. Um, there's a pandemic emergency payment program in, that the ECB has, not to be confused with the PEP, but the one that other countries like Ireland have had. And now that we, we have this new one, which is called TPI, a Transmission Protection Instrument. Financial market types have called it totally protecting Italy. So it's TPI. So, you know, as we, we financial market types don't necessarily have great senses of humor. But it is about Italy, this transmission protection instrument designed to protect the euro from the inherent design flaws that have always been present, that have always led to stresses and strains. We've had a big eurozone crisis a decade or so ago. Lots of countries were involved, not just Italy. Uh, this time is different because it is just focused on Italy and whether or not the, these new measures will be sufficient to keep Italy safe within the Eurozone, to keep the Euro itself safe. A lot of people have doubts, but the same people who have those doubts are the same people that had doubts all the way back in 1992, 93, uh, before the Euro was even formed, that have various stages of the Euro's existence forecast its demise, and they've always been wrong. So I'm not going to say that this is going to lead to anything. But I must say, it does look pretty iffy. You've got the probable winner of the next election in Italy, thanks to Mario Draghi's resignation. We have, I think, an election in September. And the probable, well, it's, it's politics, it's elections, we will never have any certainty ahead of the event. Um, probable winner of this is the leader of the party that is directly descended from the one that Benito Mussolini led. And there are a whole rake of uh, Italian politicians, as indeed there are in many countries, but we are talking about Italy, who are reasonably well disposed towards Vladimir Putin. This right-wing lurch that we've seen with Marine Le Pen in France and in many other countries in around Europe. Italy could be getting its Viktor Orban, uh, some people in the markets are saying. So it's, it's, it's very worrying. And I can't see anybody of that political persuasion being well disposed towards following economic policies consistent with being a good member of the Eurozone. So I think it has the potential, at least, to get very messy indeed. And I think the reason why the Euro itself didn't go up more than from parity against the dollar to about 101, 102 in the wake of what was quite a surprise to the markets, the 50 basis point hike, is because of Italy. I think if it hadn't been for Italy, that the, the, the tighter monetary policy would have elicited a bigger euro reaction. And I think between now and Italy somehow or other sorting itself out, if it ever does, um, we're going to have, I think, persistent euro weakness would be my guess. Uh, that's not a forecast, but uh, I think the euro is going to stay quite weak, if only because of Italy's situation. But also because I think that they are making another mistake with rises in interest rates or aggressive rises in interest rates. I understand the logic that you, you can't allow supply shock inflation to become embedded in inflation expectations uh, and all that kind of stuff. But um, there is, to my mind, there is very little non-supply -sup uh, chain inflation in Europe. Europe. The European economy, unlike the United States, unlike the United Kingdom, is operating well below full potential, full capacity. There's, uh, there's slack in the European economy. There isn't any 
in the United States or in the United Kingdom. It's a very different inflation problem. Yes, interest rates need to go up a bit to make sure that that stays the case. But the idea that you have to be aggressive and you have to be emulating what the Brits and what the Americans are doing is plainly daft. I think Philip Lane, that's what he was alluding to when he made the comments. So uh, I stand over everything that I said, which is that I think the inflation problem in Europe is di really different to the inflation problem that the UK and the US have for, for those sorts of reasons. You have both demand and supply side inflation in the UK and the US. You really only have supply side inflation in Europe. So that means a very, very different monetary response in my book. The other thing I'd say to you, Jim, which does really uh, look and smell and walk like a, a forecast, is that I think we're getting ever closer to the global supply side inflation peak. And that there are all sorts of indicators that uh, things are slowing down that um, from the demand side. Supply chains are being worked out. Individual companies are telling us that there are all sorts of things going on with supply chains that are good rather than bad. And commodity prices, as we've discussed, are coming down. Um, that's both demand and supply in my book. Um, there are signs from uh, individual property markets dotted around the world. I wouldn't join all the dots yet, but residential property in Sweden, for example, is coming off the top. We talk, I've talked about Canada and Australia before, and there are more signs, indicators rather than signs. So it's, it's straws in the wind rather than a wholesale falling in US property market activity. But each day brings another little indicator to suggest that things are slowing in the all-important US property market. So I think that we're getting closer and closer to the inflation peak story. And so I think that we will look back on yesterday's interest rate hike in Europe as being more an isolated event rather than the start of a long chain of interest rate rises, unless they make the big policy mistake again. Sorry, that's a very long-winded answer to your question about what do I think. But um, I know that you're probably a wee bit more pessimistic about inflation than me. Would that be right, Jim? Yeah, well, a little bit more, but I'm, I'd be more pessimistic on the interest rate front rather than the inflation front because, um, you know, I've been saying to people and businesses that ask me, that from a risk management perspective, they should be factoring in the possibility, and one can never forecast these things, as we've said many times, that rates could go from zero to around 2% in this cycle, and that they, they should plan for that eventuality. May or may not happen, but that's the essence of risk management. You identify possible risks and you try and mitigate those risks. So I think the European Central Bank will continue to make policy mistakes. Um, you know, you, you spoke about all of the people who were sceptical about uh, the whole Euro project going back to the early 90s. And then um, it was confounded when it actually happened on the 1st of January 99. It has survived ever since through amazing challenges. Um, I think history will show that in 2013, the Euro was on the brink of collapse. Um, and I have to say, back in the day, I was very much a Eurosceptic. Um, I did not believe that the Euro project made economic sense. I always viewed it as a victory for politics over economics. And um, I think, unfortunately, um, the, the policymakers have failed to put in place the architecture to make a single currency regime work as smoothly as it should, you know, not least the whole 
um, concept of fiscal federalism. There's been elements of it, I guess, but it has never really taken off as a concept. And you, you look at what's happening in Italy at the moment, uh, public finances in a total mess. The economy is in a total mess, as it has been for many decades. This isn't something new. Um, and a bloc led by the Brothers of Italy is now leading in the polls. And as you say, um, that, I believe, is a party that can trace its foundations back to uh, Benito Mussolini. Um, so, uh, does you know, you would really worry about the potential for Italy to cause serious problems in the euro area over the next couple of years. And um, I know the Italian 10-year bond yield this morning is at 3.57%. That's 244 basis points over the German equivalent. And there is a sort of a sense that if that differential went over 2.5% or 250 basis points, that that then would trigger this new... Um, mechanism that you um, spoke about a few minutes ago um, to try and, you know, save Italy from um, getting into serious difficulty. So, yeah, Italy definitely, I think, is going to be the big story in the euro area politically, economically and fiscally for the foreseeable future. Uh, but France is also interesting. As I said in my introduction, uh, the French government has announced a five year plan to reduce the deficit. And part of this is an overhaul of the pension system and unemployment benefits. Um, at the best of times, I would wish Macron the best of luck with that. But um, given that he lost his parliamentary majority a few weeks ago, I think it's going to be nigh on impossible for Macron to actually deliver the type of meaningful reform that France requires. So there you have two of the bigger countries in the euro area. Um, experiencing their own sorts of difficulties and uh, you, you really would worry about where all that's going to end but I would totally agree with your view that all of this does suggest euro weakness for the foreseeable future and I totally agree with you that the euro should have appreciated a lot more after the half percent interest rate increase this week than it actually did and the reason why it didn't is because um, obviously of the Italian situation um, in the UK, Chris, the political story uh, continues to boil up. Um, I heard I heard somebody saying yesterday that, um, OK, this was based on the assumption that Liz Truss will win the leadership and will become prime minister. Um, and it's that they, the story I heard told was that this is akin to to somebody in an old folks home being told that Jimmy Savile is not visiting today, but then you hear a didgeridoo playing in the background. It sounds a little bit like that, I think. That's a little harsh, Jim, I think so. Uh, although I must admit, I, I am chuckling at the, at the imagery that that conjures. Liz Truss leads, according to a YouGov poll published today, 62 to 38% over Sunak, that's the, elect the electorate that matters here is the membership of the Conservative Party in the country at large, about 200,000 people. And they are clearly leaning big time for trust. To me, it looks like that's an unassailable lead. That's what most political commentators are saying. So at the moment, today, it looks like Liz Trust for Prime Minister on September the 5th. We've got about six or seven weeks to go of this painful process of these visits to the old people's home and other 
things. The best analyst that I've seen out there is Sam Coates of Sky News. I know you get Sky in Ireland, and he's always worth watching on this. And he had a great report out. I, I'm not sure whether it was last night or this morning, in which he was saying that, that Truss is simply replaying the Brexit referendum debate, the tactics, at least, that were deployed during that. And these are familiar tactics of populists and Trumpists and other politicians everywhere. She is portraying herself as the great disruptor. She is portraying herself as somebody that is going to do things differently because the establishment of which she is not a part, she says, uh, has done things wrong for the past two decades, at least in the UK. And the establishment is trying to do you down, ordinary citizen, and I'm going to come in and I'm going to look after your interests. These people have been laughing at you and I'm going to stop all of that. It's a familiar enough refrain, I think, at this stage in, in which these very establishment figures, this woman you know, has her, the required PPE degree from Oxford. The only difference between Sunak and Truss is that their PPE degrees, which they both have, were from different Oxford colleges. It isn't as diverse as, as it looks sometimes. Sorry, what's PPE? Politics, philosophy and economics. I, I apologise. Yes, our audience may not may not be as familiar with the British education system. The, the, the British education system, to digress for a second, for, for centuries just sem- simply did two subjects, which was divinity and classics. And you can still do both degrees at many different universities, including Oxford and Cambridge. Classics, the study of ancient Greece, ancient Rome and philosophy and all those other things. Uh, Oxford, about 100 years ago, tried to, to modernize it. Classics at Oxford, in the English vernacular, is nicknamed greats. That's the degree that Boris Johnson did. But modern greats, uh, modern classics, if you like, politics, philosophy and economics. And this is how we train our prime ministers for good or ill. And so apparently she knows a bit of economics because there is an E in that PPE. Um, I don't know how much economics she did because there was a fantastic interview on Radio 4 yesterday. Nick Robinson asked her about the economics and he said, can you name a single economist? Can you name a single economic institution? Can you name a single Bank of England governor, past or present? Or indeed anybody well known in the economics community that would support your idea that all of Britain's problems, every single one of them, uh, deep-seated as you say they are, long-lasting as you say they are, because she's saying uh, that this goes back 20 years, will be cured by one policy change, and that policy change is called tax cuts. And she immediately answered Patrick Minford. Whoa! Jim, can you tell us what you know about Patrick Minford? University of Liverpool. He was. He's now University of Cardiff, actually. Yeah, that's correct. Um, mm. Yeah, he was a narch Eurosceptic. Um, totally anti-European, totally pro-Brexit. Um, a, a strange guy, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, a charming guy to meet. Yeah, I, I exactly. have met him. Very, so have I, yeah. Very courteous, very polite, mm. classically English in his mannerisms, in, in that studied, polite, courteous way that, that middle-class and upper-middle-class people in England often have. But the the, the thing about... Professor Minford is that he actually, back in the day, was a very good technical macroeconomist and has a great range of publications. But he's he's a particular example of a more general phenomenon in economics, particularly in the United States, but not exclusively there, 
in which Friedmanite, Milton Friedman, I'm making a reference to there, right-wing ideologues allow their political ideology, I think, in my opinion, to infect their economic analysis. And do the left-wing equivalents not do that? I know that you're going to say that I'm extremely naive to think there could be any economist that doesn't allow his political ideology to affect his his economic analysis. So, yes, uh, we all do it. But this is a particular example of a particular type. We could talk about other examples of other economists allowing their ideology to infect their economics. Um, maybe we'll talk about Paul Krugman. Paul oh, Krugman, exactly. On the left of the United States. But what I think Professor Minford is, is, is a particularly extreme example of the extreme right really, really infecting almost all of his economic analysis. So maybe we all do it, maybe you do it, maybe I do it a bit. I'd like to think that I don't do it very much, but again, that's probably incredibly naive. But he, but Minford doesn't even try to hide it. You know, it's, you know, it's free markets, ideology, writ large, of a quite old fashioned kind actually, without having been um, mitigated by any evidence or experiences of the last few years about what free market ideology over the last two or three decades has, has done to um, Western economies in, in particular. And in, in that regard, I found it quite interesting. You talked to, earlier on about the media landscape. There was a fascinating piece in the New York Times this week in which eight of their leading journalists uh, wrote a mea culpa wrote about things, big things that they'd said in the past that they just got wrong. And Krugman was one of the eight. And that relates to what we were just talking about, economics professors allowing their politics to affect their economics. You could argue that Krugman is an example of that. I don't think he's an as egregious or as an extreme example as Professor Minford. But yes, he always argues from a from a US left-wing perspective in whatever he now writes. The mayor culpa he wrote in the New York Times was all about getting inflation wrong. He was in teen transitory 18 months ago, and he now says, yeah, I got it wrong, and explains why. And it's, it's a decent piece, uh, well worth reading for those who also got it wrong or are interested in the reasons why people got it wrong. The, the other couple of pieces that really interested me in this collection of eight essays uh, was one written by a chap called David Brooks, who has been one of the very few right-wing commentators in the New York Times for many, many years, and was very much in that Patrick Minford camp from a slightly different perspective, but very much Friedmanite, Chicago economics, free markets are everything, governments, everything about the government is bad. Government, The only government policy worth mentioning is government getting out of the way of, of people's liberty to do whatever it is that they wanted. He's changed his mind. He's looked at the evidence, he's looked at what that has actually done by way of things like inequality, intergenerational strife, um, what globalization of free markets has done to whole communities in, in countries, all that stuff that we know and love that you, you and I have talked about. He's, he's, he's still a free marketeer, don't get me wrong, but he thinks that the, 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 the question, the issues, uh, the analysis is much more nuanced and complicated than a simple free markets, free libertarian um, that he once was he it's interesting when you when you watch people change their minds about the big philosophical underpinnings of their of their ideas the other article that really caught my eye was somebody that apologized for uh, many years ago before he got elected um, dis, before Donald Trump got elected 
was disparaging Donald Trump voters in the way that many of us have done in the past, not, not least Hillary Clinton herself, declaring them to be the deplorables. And he said he's studied them now and uh, talked to them and listened to them, and he has a much more nuanced view of them. They, clearly, they're not a homogeneous group. Not every Trump voter is the same or has the same set of reasons for being a Trump supporter. That's point number one. So don't paint them all with the same brush. It's, it's something that bothers me about a whole range of policy questions these days is that we search for the absolute simplest answer, the single answer, rather than understanding that things are complex. But the one thing he, this, this guy was saying about the Trump voters is that he didn't understand that he understands now, is that these, a, a large swathe of his base um, would, would are immune to the arguments of economists like us who point out, for example, that Trump will not improve your economic situation. He won't make things better for you. He may have identified your grievance, but if anything, he's going to make your problems worse rather than better. Whereas this guy thought this was something that was really important back then, he says that's irrelevant now. You, you just can't think that doesn't matter to, to, to people who support Trump because more than anything, more than anything, these disadvantaged communities, these old mining towns in Virginia, these smokestack towns like Detroit, these other places that uh, for one reason or one economic reason or another have been decimated. Um, they just wanted to put a middle finger up to the elites on the coasts. Um, they wanted to say to the people that had benefited from globalization, from all of this manufacturing output being produced by machines and or in China, all the people that benefited from that, um, they just wanted to say F you. And I think that's a powerful argument. I think it's really interesting. And I think that I see echoes of that in the Brexit campaign, which is why Project Fear, pointing out the economic downsides of Brexit, failed. Um, the people who voted leave just wanted to put one or two fingers up to the London-based establishment. I, I, again, I, I don't think that's the only explanation. But as I say, I think it, it carries parallels with Brexit. I think it carries parallels with the way in which Sunak and Truss are running their campaigns. So I think Truss is are trying very much to appeal to those people um, who, what, who still think that the, the, the elites in London are laughing at them. All of this division, because this is we're now talking about division, was made worse by, by Trump, who, who saw that this was an opportunity and therefore saw this divide and took out a very big shovel and dug it even deeper. Nigel Farage and co. did the same thing in the UK, in which they said, yes, these, these elites are benefiting from globalization. They're benefiting from being members of the EU and you're not. And they also added something that I think is quite sinister. They're laughing at you. They're mocking you. And it didn't help when journalists like the one I mentioned did actually disparage Trump voters. Um, I, I think that laughing thing was sinister because I think mostly it's wrong. Certainly in the UK, um, most people in the southeast never think about people in the north of England or in Wales or Scotland. Very occasionally they do if they visit or if they see, see a Welsh accent or a Scottish accent or a northern accent on the telly. But mostly um, then they, they don't laugh at other sections of their community. They just ignore them. Now you might argue that both are just as bad as each other, but I do think that this idea um, being promoted by Trump and Farage and co on this side of the Atlantic 
it, it, it's, it's interesting to see the, the way in which this debate is evolving, but to see echoes of the way in which the, the, the finger salute from the downtrodden to the elites is, is being repeated again in the UK. Sorry, Jim, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. But the... Yeah, no, I, I just pick up one point on David Brooks and, uh, you know, the view on free market economics that he was wrong, etc. Um, there is an assumption here that government does it well. And there's not a lot of evidence around the world to suggest that governments generally do it well. I mean, that's the reason why we actually have free market economics is because government intervention is not always successful. And you look at what the government has done in this country over many years in terms of its interventions in the housing market. I mean, I I am a free market economist, but I do believe in the necessity for government intervention when you get market failures. Uh, but in many cases, these government interventions actually exacerbate those market failures. So may- maybe I'm just a total cynic and total, totally, I-, I guess, pessimistic about the ability of the system to deliver solutions I, to it, the many problems we face. This is fascinating because I think it's very context or situationally dependent, Jim. You're sitting in a country that, despite everything that Sinn Féin says and lots of political commentators in the Irish Times say, it's a country that works by and large. There are many, you have problems, and we've talked about them many, many times, housing and health being the two most important ones. But from a a country at ease with itself culturally and socially, from an economy that's successful um, per capita incomes across an awful lot of socioeconomic groups are high and growing, one of the best in the world, you could go on about the indicators. But then why is Sinn Féin at 36%? Let me, let, me, let, me, let me finish, let me finish, let me finish. The situation in the Britain and the United States, but I'll speak about the UK, the country I know best. From It doesn't work anymore, Jim. The country doesn't work. Nothing works here. And I, I can't emphasise enough how there is a sense here that um, all of the important institutions have just failed us, including the corporate sector. Um, and I've written about this in, on, on our Substack site. Uh, you talked about France earlier. Actually, that's a country that works. I've just come from France, spent a few days there, and it's extraordinary crossing the um, coming on the in the Channel Tunnel. Um, it's as smooth as anything um, to go from to get on the train with your car in on the French side of the tunnel. You come out the other side, and it's just extraordinary. And the the queue of lorries on the M20, which is the road that runs essentially between London and Dover and Folkestone, the two main ports or embarkation areas, the queue of lorries is mile after mile after mile after mile. And um, there isn't a similar queue on, on the French side. There isn't any queue at all, as far as I can see. And the the, um, the checks that the British people, the British government is supposed to do on people coming into the UK um, I should have been checked and asked, you know, did I have anything to declare? There should have been a green and a red channel or something like that. Nothing, absolutely nothing. The, the number of examples that one could um, cite uh, about countries like Britain and Britain in particular not working, I think, are, are many and varied. And I think what David Brooks is getting at, Jim, is that for those countries that really did try the Reaganite, the Thatcherite, liberal capitalist free market thing the most um, which are really the united states and great britain just look at them 
it hasn't worked, is his simple point. It's not a subtle point. These societies, their economy, Britain's economy has stagnated now for, for 10 years. It's starting to stagnate in the way that Italy's has done for 20 years. Um, and look at the state of its society. Look at the state of its culture. Look at the divisions that are there. And that it's all been driven by this so-called free market, liberalism, Friedmanite type policies that weren't pursued in places like Ireland and France. Ireland and France have huge degrees of state intervention in the economy, much more so than I think that you have in um, in, in the UK. Ireland, for example, has, as you know, one of the biggest welfare transfer systems in, in, in the rich world. You transfer, transfer more income from rich to poor people than virtually anybody else in the OECD. Yeah, well, tell the left that in this country. I do, and I have done for years in my newspaper columns and now on this blog. I think that one of the things that has happened is that you've become infected with the same disease as here in the United States, and that, that's the populist plague. And I don't think we've, we, we should probably dedicate a whole podcast to that as to and answering your question specifically. Despite Ireland's success, why are the Shinners so successful? And I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it's the same reason why Liz Truss is being successful. I think it's the same reason why Brexit worked, um, why Brexit won. Um, I think it's the same reason why Donald Trump, excuse me, won the election is that the populists have worked out how to win elections by telling lies, by sowing division, by making existing divisions deeper and wider. I don't think they are winning elections because of uh, anything that they actually do when in office, but it's all about the rhetoric, it's all about the PR, it's all about the campaign, and they do that side of things brilliantly. They just exploit the pre-existing weaknesses in, in our societies, cultures and economies and make them worse. That's what populists do, they don't make them better. And, that, and, you know, Ireland's not, despite your successes, Ireland's not immune from that. OK, Chris, um, I think we'll call it a day there. Uh, good to talk again. Um, my voice isn't great this morning. I was down in Richmond Park last night watching St. Patrick's Athletic playing in Europe. Um, and it brings back to me, it was a great game, that sport is the one thing that really <laughs> keeps one sane, I think, in this crazy world. Uh, Long and a few other things. I, I couldn't agree more, Jim. Sport, sport is so important, and um, it can, it's it's a hobby horse of mine that, that for bringing up children as as well as um, those of us who are adults, being involved in one's local community via sport is incredibly important. Yeah, I'm I'm going up to Croke Park again tomorrow afternoon. Uh, the Waterford ladies are playing the Camogie semi-final, uh, first time since 1959 at that stage of the competition. So. Looking forward to it. Listen, have a great weekend, Chris. Great to talk again. Speak to you soon, Jim. Take it easy, mate. Enjoy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.